Let's go before the Lord before we open the word. Heavenly Father, we would hear from you tonight. Please keep the flesh out of the way that you might speak, that we might hear. We commit this to you and look forward to all that you shower upon us day by day and moment by moment. We do indeed need a Savior, and we need you every moment. We thank you for your loving kindness, your grace, and your wisdom, which you so liberally pour upon us. Help us to mine that wisdom from your scripture, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. This is really a strange message. Um, when I was first asked to speak a couple months ago, I, I sought the Lord. I, I don't want to give my message. If I give my message, the Lord's not going to show up, and what a mess that would be. Um, the danger is still that I would get in the way of a message the Lord wants to deliver, and he still might not show up. This is a very strange message, and I didn't think that I would be giving this. But I got some strange confirmation, and I feel compelled to sort of explain that. You know, as I was seeking the Lord, somebody sent me a link. I don't remember if the link was in the email or it, I just found it, tracking it down, but I watched a video of Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis, speaking about the Greek mind and how this nation has shifted, and it's why people don't listen to the gospel. It's why even Christians are, are turning away from the word of God. They've developed a Greek mind, and they're seeking after things that are logical and make sense. That's human nature, and that's not necessarily bad unless it runs counter to scripture. Well, one thing led to another. I lost that video, so I went to their site, and I ended up buying a bunch of material, and I ended up with some material on creation. And the message tonight, I'm not going to exegete about creation or even necessarily a position, but what we do with what God gives us in his scripture and what foundation we use as we approach scripture. Are we going to accept what the world gives us and what's logical? Or are we going to take God at his word? There could be some transference here because I'm going to speak about some people, and some of them are dear brothers in Christ. I just disagree with how they would um, use some of the scripture. And I don't mean to cast aspersions on some of these brothers. I mean, even probably forgotten more about the Bible than I'll ever learn. They're dear brothers in Christ. But there's some problems that have manifested themselves. And now, I don't see this problem really per se here, but we're seeing the effect of it. We hear the discussion how young people are leaving. They're looking for other pastors, other churches, if they remain in church at all. What brings that about? A simple verse, Proverbs 23, 23, buy the truth and sell it not. That can, of course, be used in, in lots of ways. I'm going to apply it tonight with what are we going to do with uh, what we're given? Where's our starting point? And what are we going to do with the things of value we, that we have? Of course, we could ask, do we know what truth is, and do we really believe the Bible? And we feel compelled to say, yes, of course. But the honest answer is, not really, not fully. We won't have that until we're uh, truly uh, glorified. And even then, we're going to spend all eternity learning about God. So where is the church today? If I just speak about the term, the church in general, uh, the evangelical, I'm talking about the Bible-believing church, not, the, not those that are outside of the faith. Well imprudent comes to mind. 
um, self-absorbed, shallow, and simple. And not, in, not simple in a good way, but as um, Proverbs 14, 15 would say, a simple man believes anything, but a prudent man gives thoughts to his, his steps. And I'm sure there'd be some who would say tonight, well, you're not being thoughtful, you're not being prudent in your steps. And that might be true, and if that's the case, uh, I, I stand to be corrected, as I often say. I don't want to win any arguments. I just want my understanding of Scripture and theology and God to be correct. So that when I pass into eternity, I don't have reason to shrink back in shame. You know, Stephen talked about the living oracles that Moses received, the one who stood on the, the mountain with the angel of God. But he says, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Since it's in their hearts, obviously, it's, we're speaking of Egypt as a type of the world, not the return to the nation. And many of us today, it's a danger that we can easily fall into, and many saved, well-meaning teachers uh, can bring tragedy. That's why it's a good thing to be afraid to be up here. To be in any position where we're teaching, knowing we're going to be held to a, a stricter condemnation. You know, um, our brother David shared a, a few weeks back about the good king, uh, Hezekiah. And not all the good kings of Judah were all that good. Sometimes decisions they made were not great for the nation of Judah or their spirituality. You know, false teachers bring in destructive heresies. Those were pretty good at identifying. But many of today's Christians are so simple in, with regard to Scripture that can't discern them. What about when teachers come that have excellent credentials or profess a, maybe genuinely a, a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ? What chance do Christians who aren't strongly grounded in Scripture have? Not much. You know, Peter, um, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter makes reference to a letter that Paul had written. I believe the letter to the Hebrews, but it's, he says, Paul, in 2 Peter 3, 16 to 17, Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you, do not, that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Truly unprincipled men put themselves before the flock. But you know, we're accountable for what we as individuals also do with the word. Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And we often quote that without visiting the rest of that, that verse. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you as being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. You know, we're admonished by Paul in, uh, in 2 Timothy 2.15 to be diligent in presenting ourselves approved to God, a workman, no reason to be ashamed, rightly able to divide the word of truth. Well, what is selling the truth? Well, it's giving away something of value for far less than what it's worth. I mean, Esau gave away his birthright for a bowl of porridge. And I believe a significant portion of the church today is so in the world that they're uncomfortable. They're not willing to ascribe to God the majesty he deserves. The wonder of what is creation. 
I'm speaking to myself. It's a danger that we're drawn into logic. We deny his majesty, his deity, the supernatural power. We look for answers in the world. What's wrong with us? Much of the church feels compelled to give more authority to the logic of men than the word of God. I look in the mirror. I see me in that statement. When I see things in the Bible that are hard to understand, I'm tempted to twist them and distort them. What am I saying about the God I believe in? That he's unable? What does Colossians 2.8 warn us? See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, whom the fullness of deity dwells. Often that's me. And we see the effect of this on ourselves and on those around us. We know where to buy truth and where to get it. Christ is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What did he say to the church at Laodicea? That maybe at times I see a slice of in me. They think they're wealthy. They think they're well-clothed and they're in good shape. He counsels them, buy of me. Buy of me that thou mayest be rich, that thou mayest be clothed, that thy nakedness would be covered up, that thou mayest see. Jesus in his high priestly prayer said, Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. We know where to find it. It's the scripture. It's the Bible. It's not only the truth, but that verse tells us it can set us apart from the world. But we often run right back to the world for understanding of what we find hard to accept in scripture. Why is that? It's to our shame. You know, we don't want to go to the world for truth. We might see the truth of God reflected in the world, but the world should never be our source for truth. You know, for those of us who have any regard for the word of God, it's easy to avoid overt, obvious things, you know, cult practices or Satan worship, paganism, New Age mysticism, if we're paying attention, even the emergent church, which is full of New Age mysticism and even Old Age mysticism. They'll go back to the Desert Fathers, but they won't go back another 200, 300 years to the disciples, to the apostles, to the Savior. And we see the professing church today has a difficult time avoiding the subtle errors and heresies. Again, because mankind often entirely gives too much respect for the mind of men and too little for the word of God. Now, how else could the church let in some of the teachings of sexual deviants and godless humanists, demonized individuals. I think of Freud or Maslow, Carl Jung. That's invaded the church nowadays. There are people that are enemies of the gospel. And we've, when I say we, I know it's not evident here, but much of the church has embraced these men. 
because it's logical, because it fits human understanding. We've embraced the world. Some think that God don't, doesn't really care if we play fast and loose with his word, and we meld in. Like some of the good kings of Judah, we let the high places remain and burning incense and embracing the world. I'll read a couple passages from uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and then some from Romans chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, God takes it pretty serious when he demonstrates things to us and we ignore. Think of Kadesh Barnea. All those times that the children of Israel doubted him and turned away after his mighty miracles. We have millennia of prophecy and promises that we've seen come true. What makes us so arrogant? Yes, we're living in the, the, the age of grace, but what makes us so arrogant that we can turn away, that we can ignore and choose what we're going to believe? Romans chapter 1, very familiar passage, verses 18 to 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his, external, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. We look at the creation. We worship the creation. We seek our answers there. I'm using that as a collective term. Again, I'm not pointing the finger at the saints here at Claremont. But it's certainly manifested throughout the professing church. What are the consequences of this? We're, we're reaping the fruits of it. The church, again, as a whole. The studies tell us two-thirds of young adults are going to leave, going to leave the church. Whose fault is that? Well, they bear some responsibility. How are we failing them as a, as a, as a group, a body of believers on this earth? 
going back to Ken Ham, they did a study. They were trying to figure this out. And they, they hired somebody to do a study, and they skewed it towards conservative churches. They, they interviewed 1,000 uh, young people between the age of 20 and 29 who had left a very conservative uh, church. And they, they spent some time asking them why they had left. And they had a number of reasons. They ended up making this into a book called Already Gone. The surprising thing was the ones most likely to leave the church were the ones who attended Sunday school. And while they identified a number of reasons, the overarching reason was what these kids were being taught about Genesis, about creation. They were learning to be skeptical. So why are they? And they're being taught that in churches, well-meaning. As Ken Ann would say, oh, you don't have to believe in Genesis. Just, just believe in Jesus. And, you, know, you, can, you, you can be saved and go to heaven that way. What's going to be the effect on the church? What's going to be the effect on young people? And what's going to be the effect on some of the lost when they hear you don't have to accept all the scripture? Doesn't it all rest on that? Time will keep me from going through it all, but I, I'm going to, I want to read some scripture, otherwise I'm going to end up spending more time quoting an atheist, uh, and that would probably be a first for the chapel here. I want to tell you ahead of time, I agree with this atheist, with the statements he's making. Well, he knows the truth now, he's passed into eternity, and I utterly reject his atheism, but he makes some statements that are very true. Well, I'm going to read um, some, just, I'm going to chop, you all know these passages, but I'm going to go through Genesis 1, Genesis 2, 3, 7, 9, and 11, then we're going to jump to Exodus and then to the New Testament a little bit. There's something in common with all these verses. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. On day two, uh, he creates the expanse, the heavens, and separating the waters. Jumping to verse 11, portions of 11 and 13. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation after their kind, trees bearing fruit and seed with them. God saw that it was good. A third day. Jump into verse 16. God made the two great lights. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Verse 19, there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Verses 20 and 23. Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Verse 24, 25. And on, he brings forth the cattle, the creeping things, and the beasts of the earth after their kind. God made the beasts of the earth. Verse 26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. All this on the sixth day. God created man in his own image. Verse 29. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed 
Every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and in it shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. If Genesis 1 is very precise on the days and when the order of when things were, were created, Genesis 2 gets a little more broad, but jumping to verse 7 of Genesis 2, then God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and man became a living soul. Verse 21, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he took one of his curbs or one of his ribs. The Lord fashioned it into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, an important verse here. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In 25, they were both naked but were not ashamed. Jumping to Genesis 3. God speaking to Adam. Then he said unto Adam, Because you have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat it, cursed is the ground because of you. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Jumping to Genesis chapter 7. We have the story of the flood. Verse 17. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days. Verse 19, the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. In Genesis 9, we have the story of Noah coming out of the ark. God blesses him and says to fill the earth. But he tells him, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you. Verse 4, only you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. In Genesis 11, we have the story of Babel, a gate of God. As Jay would say, God came down and squeezed the word together and created confusion. Exodus 20, verse 11, we talk about the Ten Commandments here. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Leviticus 17 reiterates that life of the, of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. I'll read just a couple more, jumping to the New Testament, quoting the Lord Jesus in Mark 10, verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. In Romans 5, Paul talks about sin and death. Romans 5, 12, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now there are brothers in Christ, sincere brothers in Christ, who would say that's just speaking about men, death to men. Death existed before this. And you know, according to that verse there, you, you could certainly make that argument. How about a little further in the chapter, verse 16 through 17, um, maybe even to 19. 
The gift, Romans 5, 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. They would argue again that that's all for man. But what happens if we go to Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 22? And I apologize, I'm jumping, as I said, in the interest of time to get through the, the idea rather than the exegesis of the scripture themselves. What are we going to do with what this is saying? Romans for, uh, chapter 8, 19 to 22. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Go on with a lot more. Let me just jump to one more verse. And it's again, it's God going right back to creation. Second Corinthians 4 verse 6 says this, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Again, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. I said they've all got something in common, and what is it? Well, if the naturalistic scheme of creation, the millions of years, the Big Bang theory, and even theistic evolution is true, and those, those verses, everything, all the concepts in there, all the things that they're telling us are destroyed. They have no value. You know, even the order of creation is specified there. And our dear brothers in Christ who believe in the old age of the earth, or progressive creation or the day-age theory, that renders those verses meaningless. It's all out of whack. How can we have the earth created before the universe? Science says foolishness. How can we have the plants created before the sun? Or foolishness. Well, what are the foundational doctrines that we're, we're talking about here? You know, Scripture says that God created ex nihilo created everything out of nothing. The Big Bang Theory says first there was nothing and then it exploded. And that's an honest assessment of what it is. I don't mean to denigrate the great minds that have gone into this, but that's the logic of man. You know, God says all creation was good. It started good and it's moved towards destruction. Science says no. It all started as nothing, and it's moving towards better and better. Higher life forms forming. It's just the opposite of what God says. 
I firmly believe scripture says the earth was created in six literal days. Science says no, millions and billions of years. Scripture says Adam and Eve were created as specific human beings perfectly. Science says no, they're the product of, of death. That's really what they say. Human beings are the product of death. Millions and billions of years of things growing and dying and slowly becoming greater and greater until man formed. I, I believe the scripture teaches us that the earth is 6,000 years old. Science says no, it's millions and billions of years. Scripture tells us sin and death came into the world through the fall. Science says no, death is natural. It's a part of, of where we came from. But there is no fall. If the former is true, well, man's accountable for his sin and needs a savior. If science is right and death has always existed, well, you say savior, they say, what? Savior for what? There's no sin. Death is natural. God says he puts conscience in our heart and in science says there's no such thing as right or wrong. Blind, pitiless indifference is what Dawkins says. Scripture tells us we get clothes as a symbolic covering of sin. Science says, oh, it's just utilitarian. Scripture tells us there was a deluge, a worldwide flood, covering all the mountains under the heavens. Science says no such thing, fable, didn't happen. Man and animals were originally vegetarian, according to Scripture. Science says, no, there's always been death by others, all the way back as far as we can trace it. Thorns and thistles are evidence of the, of the fall and the judgment of God. And they say, no, thorns and thistles have been around for millions and billions of years. You know, in the garden, Satan said, half God said. And we would expect the atheists, they don't believe there is a God. But even theologians today, it's a lot of the liberal ones are saying, half God said. Well, I said I was going to quote some atheists. What do they say? I'm going to quote Thomas Huxley. He was affectionately referred to as Darwin's bulldog. He was a... Uh, a leading humanist and a contemporary of Darwin, and he loudly proclaimed the inconsistency of those theologians who were willing to compromise and conform the scriptures to the current ideas of science. It would, it would appear that Huxley uh, had a clearer view of how one should view scripture, even if he didn't believe it to be true. Certainly a better view of it than the theologians which he was criticizing. Quoting from one of his essays, Huxley said this, I am fairly at loss to comprehend how anyone, for one moment, can doubt that Christian theology must stand or fall with the historical trustworthiness of the Jewish scriptures. The very conception of the Messiah, or Christ, is inextricably interwoven with Jewish history. The identification of Jesus of Nazareth with that Messiah rests upon the interpretation of the passages of Hebrew scriptures which have no evidential value unless they possess a historical character assigned to them. Continuing, if Abraham is more or less a mythical hero, such as Theseus, the story of the deluge, a fiction, that of the fall, a legend, and that of creation, the dream of a seer, if all these definite and detailed narratives of apparently real events have no more value as history than have the stories of regal period of Rome, what is to be said about the Messianic doctrine, which is so much less clearly enunciated? And what about the authority of the writers of the books of the New Testament, who, on this theory, have not merely accepted flimsy fictions for solid truths, but have built the very foundation of Christian dogma 
upon legendary quicksands. He continued on, I confess I soon lose my way when I try to follow those who walk delicately among types and allegories. A certain passion for clearness forces me to ask bluntly whether the writer means to say that Jesus did not believe the stories in question or that he did. When Jesus spoke, as a matter of fact, that the flood came and destroyed them all, did he really believe that the deluge really took place or not? It seems to me that, as the narrative mentions Noah's wife and his son's wives, there is good scriptural warranty for the statement that the antediluvians married and were given in marriage. And I should have thought that their eating and drinking might be assumed to be by the firmest believer in the literal truth of the story. Moreover, I, I venture to ask, what sort of value, as an illustration of God's method of dealing with sin, has an account of an event that never happened? If no flood swept away the careless people, how is the warning of more worth than the cry of wolf when there is no wolf? I can't disagree with anything that he said. He quotes Christ from Matthew 19, 4 and 5. And he answered them and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Huxley continued, If divine authority is not here claimed for the 24th verse of the second chapter of Genesis, what is the value of language? And again I ask, If one may play fast and loose with the story of the fall as a type or allegory, what becomes of the foundation of Pauline theology? And he quotes Paul from 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, to make his point. For since by death, for since by man came death, and by man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Thus concerning those who accepted the New Testament doctrines that Paul and Christ teach, but have rejected Genesis' literal history, the melancholy fact remained that the position they have taken up is hopelessly untenable. You know, Huxley very clearly and accurately portrays the dilemma. And he justly mocks those who would take the position of rejecting what God has told us. You know, he was happy to see that these theologians were willing to compromise their position, compromise a literal meaning of the text because he was out to destroy the literal record of the Bible. He was ecstatic that they gave him such an easy method with which to undermine the authority of Scripture. Uh, Ken Ham, in reviewing this, put it that Huxley made the point that, you know, if, if we're going to believe the New Testament, we're going to have to accept the historical record of Genesis at the historical truth. You know, we find it easy to reject men like Richard Dawkins. I, I, gave you a partial quote of something. He said, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. We don't worry about fools like that. And I use the term fools in the, in the, the realm of Psalm 14 from the one who says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But what about Christian leaders? Christian leaders who are accepted in the beloved. that buy high and sell low. You know, Charles Hodge was the principal at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. He didn't believe in, in evolution, but he did ascribe to the old earth 
theory, and he, he said, the church has been forced more than once to alter her interpretation of the Bible to accommodate the discoveries of science. But this has been done without any violence to the scriptures or in any degree impairing their authority. And you know, there is some truth when we see things that science measures and discovers and presents to us, that there's a beauty there and that it confirms scripture. But when we take the observations of science and modify scripture to fit it, that's dangerous ground. B.B. Warfield succeeded him a couple, uh, I guess his son, the son of Charles Hodge was in the chair before him, but B.B. Warfield went further. He accepted evolution. In teaching a class on evolution to seminary students at Princeton, he said, I do not think that there is any general statement in the Bible or any part of the account of creation either as given in Genesis 1 and 2 or elsewhere alluded to that need be opposed to evolution. You know, the reason that I came with this message, it's not to exegete Scripture. It's to talk about what do we do with the Scripture that we do exegete. How do we accept it? What about some of the modern people? The reason I'm bringing this, I really had doubts. Should I be bringing this message to the saints? I, th I think I should. I think we should be praying about ourselves, the effect on our own young people and our own hearts, and certainly the church around us that's slipping into Laodicea. <laughs> As I was putting this together, I got a note from a friend at PFB, pastor. It just drew me up. You know, I've got family and friends here. I love them. I pray for their ministry. The Lord's using them in a mighty way. If I hadn't been speaking at Vista this morning, I probably would have gone to PFB to listen to Dr. Hugh Ross. Dear brother in Christ, Brilliant scientist. He believes in the old age of the earth. Though he's accepted in the beloved and the dear brother in Christ, I believe this is causing great destruction to the church. How about Dr. Howard Van Til, professor of physics at Calvin College? Like B.B. Warfield, he's a theistic evolutionist. He said, it's an incontrovertible scientific fact that there is a long history of life and death for a period of billions of years before people like you and I appeared on Earth. So physical death before the fall must be accepted as a fact of science. I don't know if he's still alive or not. This was recorded in a debate in 1988. More recently, he's declared himself to be a free thinker. Uh, that's a euphemism for uh, a humanist, whether agnostic or atheistic. Um, it would appear that his theistic uh, evolution position became even untenable even for him. 
And he chose a route to a godless secular humanism rather than choosing the wisdom of Christ. Said Russell Moore about the fall of Van Til's or about his loss of faith, he said, I only wish he had found the freedom he seeks in the wisdom of Christ, not the wisdom of the scribes. He's referring to a passage, of course, in 1 Corinthians, speaking about the wisdom of, of the earth and what does God choose. Of course, he says he chooses the wise. In verse 20, he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It goes on to tell us that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But we keep turning to the wisdom of the world. The sad, sorry truth is, the polls show it, that the majority of pastors, church leaders, Sunday school teachers in the professing, again, talking about the Bible-believing church, I don't worry about the liberals who are outside, don't believe in Christ. These are people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. The sad fact is the majority of them either believe in the old age of the earth and reject the literal interpretation of Genesis or they're unwilling to take a position on it. I often say it can't be taken in a literal sense because it would contradict science. They obviously believe science is more dependable than scripture. These so-called Bible teachers insist, as Warfield did, that we must, that Science has proven the earth to be billions of years old, as Van Til said, rather, and that we have to accept it. In doing so, it gives rise to all manner of, of theories of creation and evolution schemes which are absent the deity of God. I guess they never read Colossians 2.8. Many of these liberal theologians and even these that are serving in churches have also whether they mean to or not, have taken up the chant, hath God said. They do violence with scripture to bring it into compliance with science. Looking at historical science, it can't be proven. You can't really observe it. It's dealing with inference and theory. Logical, yes, but not provable. And it's in conflict with the scriptures. You know, in Deuteronomy 13, we're warned, hey, well, how do you know who's a prophet? Well, if one comes and prophesies, and even what he prophesies comes true, but if he tempts you away to worship other gods, we have to reject him. We not apply that to what we do with Scripture. You know, these teachers who are shepherding these students into skepticism and disbelief might benefit from a careful study of Ezekiel 34. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A little bit of fear can be a good thing. That might not be the direct application of Ezekiel 34, but God deals harshly with those that abuse what he's given them charge of. And we need to do the same thing. We need to study Ezekiel 33 for those of us who believe what Scripture teaches us and take Genesis as literal. If we ignore heresy and don't speak out against false teaching and teachers, What's going to be the result?
if we continue to teach the students that there's portions of the Bible they don't have to believe, what do we think is going to happen? I know that many of the dear brothers in Christ who take opposing views on Genesis and the literal value of much of this scripture, they just say they have a different interpretation, but they have to do violence to the text to get it to agree with their beliefs. And they're doing it to bring it into compliance with science. You see, in their eyes, it's scripture that needs modification, not science. And our educational system, of course, what does it do with scripture? Well, it's, it's pushing it out every chance it can. It mocks it, makes, not only makes fun about it, it lies about it, forcibly evicting it from the classroom, claiming that it's full of error. You know, thank God for the teachers that are in the school system that love the Lord and have an opportunity to share and explain the love of God the justness of God, and even perhaps teaching a fear of God, and the trustworthiness of Scripture. But it's like a single raindrop in the middle of a hurricane. Most of our children are going to public schools. You know, the, the students who are being taught this skepticism, they see the hypocrisy in rejecting Genesis. And they determine in their hearts, if there is a God, he's not trustworthy, not dependable, not consistent. You know, these teachers are giving their students reason to blaspheme the name of God. All in the name of being rational, reasoning. It's not reason, not in the sense that Isaiah would ask us, and come let us reason together. It's really more of an insanity when we find ourselves railing against God and denying what he's told us. What are these disillusioned students or congregants in a church going to do? They're going to develop the Greek mind. They're going to look at things with the mind of the world. They're going to start looking for things that are rational. They're going to choose churches based on whether or not it fits their concept of the modern paradigm of science. They're going to choose churches and teachers that way. Like the the Greeks on Mars Hill. They're always looking for something new. And there's a new theory, a new idea, a new paradigm just around the corner. And Satan's celebrating. What's Satan's goal? His goal is to get us to seek out truth everywhere except from Scripture. He can't defeat the Word of God. You know, ultimately, one's position on the veracity of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 proclaims rather loudly whether or not God's word or man's word is what we take as our scriptural authority. And if we don't believe what scripture says about creation and the beginning things, why should we expect anybody to believe the end things? And more importantly, how to get to the proper end thing? You know, what does the world have for hope after this life? And all the people I speak to out on the street Almost all of them, they don't even think about it. They shout it out. They don't want to think about it. What about the atheist? You know, uh, our, our brother Dave Hunt recently went home to be with the Lord. He said something, uh, as he often does, it, full of thought. Thinking about an atheist, what do they, they hope for? 
He said, can you stop and think for a moment about what is the greatest hope of an atheist? The greatest hope of an atheist is that there is nothing after death. Our hope is God's righteousness, his grace, his mercy, his loving kindness, the promise that his children are going to spend forever in the presence of his glory. We believe that and accept it and hold it to be true. You know, we're called to be witnesses amongst our brethren in the flesh that they might become brothers and sisters in the Lord. If they see the hypocrisy that we only pick and choose what we believe, what do we expect is going to happen to the church? You know, why did Jesus say, Luke 18, you know, when Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? We can know not because of a burning in our bosom, but by Scripture. And if scriptural authority is destroyed because we've sold it for a bowl of porridge, how effective can we be? How much can we grow and how much can we impact the world around us? You know, I didn't bring this message here because I, I think this is a hotbed of people who reject the veracity of Scripture. Quite the contrary is true. It's, it's why I'm here. But are we so uncaring that we wouldn't lift in prayer the church around us? What about our children? I've sat and listened to the I'll speak about how many of our young ones are leaving and going to what they perceive to be greener fields. Brothers and sisters, this is something we ought to be in prayer about. Heavenly Father, we're weak. We need your strength. We would seek after your truth, and we pray that you would pour out a spirit of conviction. Some of us are cold-hearted and don't care. You deal with us harshly to bring us to our knees and weep. Father, that's a good thing. We're sorry that we come to weakness. We pray for your strength. We pray that you would bring to remembrance those around us who need prayer. Father, we pray that you would strengthen this assembly, that you would call us each to account as required, that we each might be found faithful Father, help us to develop a love for our brothers and sisters and the Lord around us that we might continually remember them in prayer. And all things we do seek to give you glory. We thank you again for your precious eternal word, the truth, the manner by which we may come to a, a knowledge of you and of your Son. And we give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for it. Amen.